1: The Egyptian History Podcast Episode 24 Lamentations In approximately 2100 BCE, Egypt was a disunited land. It was now nearly a century since Pepe II passed away at the age of 70, leaving a weakened and ineffectual kingship behind him. His successor, Merenre the II, lived for just one year before succumbing to old age. What followed was a succession crisis, a series of short-lived rulers most likely children of Pepe the Second, who took the throne for brief periods before dying themselves. In the many years which have passed since Peppi the Second's death, two more dynasties have passed, numbers 7 and 8. These two dynasties are so ephemeral that most of the kings are simply names on a list. They achieved little of lasting impact, although a few did manage to promulgate decrees for the protection of temples. And at least one, Kakare Ibi, managed to build a very small pyramid at South Saqqara, with many pyramid texts accompanying his burial. But these were small, fleeting achievements in the larger narrative. By 2100, those two dynasties had disappeared, and the kingdom of the Nile Valley was now disunited. Small principalities were dotted up and down the river, ruled by local elite families, who acted pretty much autonomously. On the surface, these regional governors were still, in theory, servants of the king. They referred to him as their lord, and suggested that all beneficial things originated with the ruler. But this was simply lip service. While a king, in theory, ruled the whole kingdom, his authority did not extend very far beyond the capital at Memphis. Each province was now essentially independent, ruled by a family who oversaw and administered to their communities and their farmland. This political decentralization was probably not immediately devastating in terms of warfare or economic depression, but it was a severe blow to the whole concept of kingship as an eternal and all-pervasive institution. For the Egyptians, it seemed as though the gods had abandoned the king, forsaking the lineage of divine rulers, who for nearly 1,000 years had protected and guided humanity. This mindset and state of depression is conveyed to us through a later text copied during the New Kingdom. The text is called the Lamentations of Ipuwer. Now, scholars still debate the exact origin of the Lamentations, with many favouring a composition around the late 12th dynasty. Whether it refers to the first intermediate period at all is also a matter of controversy. Certainly, the Lamentations appear to describe a period of disorder, disunity, internal conflict, and general chaos. For some, this sounds quite a lot like the first intermediate period. For others, it is more like an exercise in genre, with a later writer trying to convey disorder and woe as elegantly as possible. I tend to think that the Lamentations don't describe the first intermediate period literally, but I do treat them in a conceptual sense. I think ware conveys notions that might be connected with this period. The situation that he describes is certainly exaggerated for effect, and it probably doesn't provide a true historical record. But we can still use it to discuss many ideas about the period, particularly in the sense of how the Egyptians viewed it. Indeed, the terms in which ware describes the country is pretty consistent with a world view in which divine monarchs have been abandoned by the gods and those living throughout Egypt must fend for themselves sometimes violently so whether the lamentations of Ipuwer date exactly to this time or not i think they capture the sentiments of the first intermediate period quite well So, let's get into Ipuwer's lamentations and see how he felt about Egypt in a time of disorder. The plunderer is everywhere, and the servant takes what he finds. Indeed, the Nile floods, but no one ploughs for it. Everyone says, we do not know what will happen throughout the land. Indeed, the women are barren, and none conceive. The god Khnum no longer fashions men, because of the condition of the land. End quote. These are the words of someone imagining chaos in the most Egyptian of terms. Infertility strikes up and down the land, affecting not just farmland, but women as well. Both agriculture and reproduction are reduced, with an implicit connection drawn between the two. The great god Kanum, A primeval deity responsible for fashioning humanity out of mud has ceased his work. New individuals are not made, suggesting perhaps a general decline in birth rates due to the economic depression which definitely affected Egypt during the first intermediate period. The Nile floods were reduced from around 2200 BCE onwards due to a shifting climate pattern in North Africa. The monsoonal rains which tended to appear in the southern reaches of the Nile and produce the annual flood were reduced. Simultaneously, the Sahara was expanding eastward, reducing the extent of grazing land and encroaching on the Nile Valley farming settlements. Even Memphis seems to have been partly troubled by growing sand dunes to the west which dried out the soil and reduced the town's fertile land. Economic depression goes hand in hand with a reduced population. This is simply a fact of human society, particularly in the early agricultural civilizations. The human body is adept at recognizing when it lacks sufficient nutrients to reproduce. And without even enough to fend themselves, human fertility must have decreased in general. Ipuware was right to lament this, for such problems can be severely compounded over the course of years. The general reduction in fertility throughout North Africa during this period probably caused shortages for many communities at various points. And when a grain harvest is small, a village must use more of the harvest for food, leaving less behind for replanting. The grain seeds are either ground up for bread or used for planting, not both. In this way, even just two years of bad harvest could cause a decade or more of shortages, as communities must slowly rebuild their supplies of seeds, while still keeping enough just to feed themselves. If we remember back to the reign of Unas, in episode 16, you may recall that within the pyramid causeway of this king, several figures of starving Bedouin were carved. These are likely the earliest representations of the climate shift that was underway at the time, reducing rainfall and food production across North Africa and the Middle East. So by the time the Egyptians of 2100 BCE were dealing with these issues, the problem had been slowly but surely building into general infertility. Ipuwers' recollections on this, affecting both agriculture and humanity, were probably not far from the historical reality of the First Intermediate Period. Quote, The desert is throughout the land, and the provinces are laid waste, and barbarians from abroad have come to egypt there are no egyptians anywhere indeed the builders of pyramids are now cultivators and those who were in the sacred barge are now tied to it none indeed shall sail northward to byblos today This passage is not quite literal but is rather a more metaphorical complaint Ipue's point is essentially, Egyptians today are not what they used to be. If you've heard that refrain before in your life, take comfort from the fact that nearly every single generation in human history has said pretty much the same thing about their contemporaries. The pyramid builders of the Old Kingdom have become farmers. In other words, they have abandoned the majestic works of the past for the more immediate concerns of food and survival. Barbarians from abroad have come to Egypt. This one is a bit more vague, and could refer to periods of time not necessarily connected with the first intermediate period. I suspect it's a general complaint, not quite to be taken literally. The confinement of the king's power is conveyed elegantly through Ipuwer's frustrated statement None indeed shall sail northward to Byblos today. The reduction in trade, which certainly occurred around this time, was tied to the more difficult economic situation, and also the restricted resources of the king himself. Just as the royal expeditions to Nubia had disappeared late in Dynasty Six, so too had the dispatch of ships to Byblos in the Levant, or Punt, disappeared. Egypt was closed off, dealing with its own problems and its own concerns, with little attention for the outside world. Ipuwer continues on this general theme, To what purpose is a treasury without its revenues? Happy indeed is the heart of the king when Ma'at comes to him, and every foreign land comes to him. That is our fate and that is our happiness. What can we do about it? All is ruin. Indeed, laughter is perished, and is not made. It is groaning that is throughout the land, mingled with complaints." The absence of ma'at, or order, in Egypt is implied quite heavily by Ipuwe. And when ma'at is absent, Divine favour is absent. It is a failure on the part of the king to uphold his duties to the cosmic realm. Ipue's Lamentations can be very easily read as a description of the First Intermediate Period, and some of its main features probably were very closely based on what later Egyptians thought about that era. It can also be read as a textbook on depression, a sort of encyclopedia of things Egyptians would consider unpleasant and horrendous. General woe throughout the land is conveyed, with melodramatic thoughts pervading the populace. Quote, Hair has fallen out for everybody, and the man of rank can no longer be distinguished from he who is nobody. Indeed, the great and the small say, I wish I might die. Little children say, He should not have caused me to live. Indeed, the children of princes are dashed against the walls, and the children of the neck, i.e. infants, are laid out on the high ground. In other words, buried. End quote. Ugh, spare me the melodrama. The idea of such all-pervasive woe throughout the kingdom is certainly, as far as we can tell, not a genuine reflection of the First Intermediate Period. Indeed, while there was a disturbing lack of central authority, which would have been a concern for a great many people, the First Intermediate Period shows plenty of evidence of life pretty much carrying on as before. This is one of the most frustrating things about writing history, at all periods. We talk about great shifts in societies, or calamitous breaks in continuity, and sometimes these are valid. The destruction of cities, or plagues, can render huge shifts in the community affected by such disasters. Kings and dynasties can be violently overthrown, and whole empires can be torn apart by war or internal division. But in the vast majority of cases, we are talking about changes and disruptions, which really only affected a small group of wealthy families. Now, that's a generalisation, and of course warfare affects all who partake in it, whether it's the peasant foot soldier or the elite general. But a time like the first intermediate period, and similar periods in human history, are really disruptions for a very small group. The rest of the society kind of just carry on, day to day, as best as they can. A scribe like Ipuwer, who was literate, wealthy, and certainly of high social status, may consider the collapse of a royal hierarchy totally horrendous to good sensibilities. But do you think a farmer living at Elephantine, way down in the south of the country, really gives a damn about what happens to the north in Memphis? I'd be surprised if he did care, beyond the most casual curiosity, or at least concern that the gods might not be venerated properly. At the end of the day, that farmer has crops to care for, and on the way home he might make a small offering to the gods for the protection of his family and livelihood. The struggles of the powerful are distant and of little true consequence. This at least is the situation for the majority of the Nile population. Their concerns were immediate, probably focused on maintaining the fields and producing whatever goods they needed to survive. Ipuwe's lamentations are those of a small group, remembering a time when they lacked central protection and direction. This is not to say the first intermediate period was not violent, and we will see in the next two episodes that Egypt was torn in two by warring factions struggling for supremacy. But for many... Life in the first hundred years after the death of the II probably continued in the same rhythm it always had. The harvests were smaller, and the presence of royal administration had declined considerably. But beyond this, the pattern pretty much continued as it had for thousands of years. The farmer collected his harvest, gave a portion of it to the local prince, and continued about his business. That prince, or Kheri-Tep-Aya, great chief, of each region now acted for his own community, rather than for the king. Pretty soon this would lead to competition and warfare, such as when the great chief ankh expanded his dominion in Upper Egypt, conquering towns and generally raising hell against the local powers. We will meet him in episode 25.
0: even at 30,000 feet, so sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life.
1: The local princes, these Kheri were powerful men in their own right, each commanding a large amount of land and extracting revenue from it. They built lovely tombs for themselves and recorded their achievements in autobiographies similar to those we have already seen emerging in the late 5th and early 6th dynasties. At Koptos, a man named Edi recorded the following, quote, The words spoken by the officials of the regions throughout Upper Egypt, The god's father, beloved one of the god, and hereditary prince, foster child of the king, the foremost of action, the overseer of Upper Egypt, E.D. I established monuments, and I made pleasant with incense the car chapel of my father and my ancestors. I renewed and established the statues of these noble ones, these hereditary princes, which I had found in a state of disrepair. I never gave my father a reason to be disappointed. I never did anything which was distasteful to him. You'll notice that Edi makes a couple of references to the king, and portrays his role as one tied to the royal administration. To some extent this might still have been valid, given that he held the title of overseer of Upper Egypt. The tomb of Edi dates from the late 8th dynasty, before Egypt was really divided between warring factions. Edie, then, is probably one of the last generation of noblemen to serve under a king who could at least pretend to have authority over the whole of the Nile Valley. But it was a figurehead position. Edie's social status was great, but his actual authority was probably not immense. He was wealthy, certainly wealthy enough to afford a lovely tomb, but this was a period where one's social status did not match with the true extent of one's authority. Indeed, Edie's emphasis is on small achievements rather than large projects. He restored the family chapels of his ancestors and renewed their statues in order to preserve their souls, or ka, in the afterlife. Certainly his devotion to his family was strong, and he was justifiably proud of what he had done to look after their legacy. But unfortunately, Edie was of a dying generation, one that could claim to serve a single monarch. By the year 2100 BCE, when we began this episode, the 8th dynasty was gone, replaced in the north by a line of rulers known as the Heracleopolitan kings. The Heracleopolitan kings arose in Lower Egypt at a town called Henen nesut or House of the Royal Child. The Greeks called it Heracleopolis Magna, or Great Heracleopolis. The name referred to the legendary Heracles, or Hercules. Today, the region is known as Beni-Suef, Frankly, I don't think any of these names really suit the actual line of kings, and have chosen to go with the name by which the Egyptians referred to them, the House of Keti. The House of Keti was a line of rulers who dominated Lower Egypt until around 2040 BCE. Their founder was a regional governor named Waqqare Keti I, who managed to establish the family as a regional faction superior to that of the waning 8th dynasty. The House of Keti are Egypt's Ninth and 10th dynasties, a family of powerful rulers who for approximately a 100 years dominated the northern regions. Their influence stretched southward to at least the region of Asyut, located in Middle Egypt. The princes of Asut were pseudo-vassals of the house of Keti, and their territory formed the southern limit of Wakare Keti's kingdom. Wakare Keti proved to be the strongest ruler in some time, but his historical reputation is a negative one. The Greek historian Manatho, writing in the 200s BCE, tells us that Keti I was a tyrannical harmful ruler who finally died by crocodile whether there is any truth to this is of course a matter of speculation but certainly ketty the first did not have sufficient influence to reach all throughout egypt perhaps his conquests gave him a negative tone but he would not be the first ruler in history to come to power through such means i think we should reserve judgment on his life until more is known. The kingdom that Wakare Keti and his descendants ruled over seems to have been slightly more fortunate than Upper Egypt, which suffered extensively from famine during this period. Around this general period, the Upper Egyptian official ankh recorded a testament to the aid he had given to people of his region. Food being scarce in many communities, he took up the charge of providing goods from his own provinces, as part of a general attempt to expand his principality and ensure popular goodwill. Quote, All of Upper Egypt was dying of hunger, and people were eating their children. But I did not allow anybody to die of hunger in this province. End quote. References to cannibalism may seem extreme, but it is possible that such instances occurred in communities which were particularly hard-hit by famine. I'd take it with a grain of salt, and suggest that Tifi was exaggerating the situation to make himself appear more magnificent. But it's certainly possible it did happen, especially if famine was as widespread as many texts seem to hint. Anktifi was not the only official of this period to record such contributions to his community. Many others did the same. The way they were able to do this was connected with an increased emphasis on storage in some Upper Egyptian towns. At Abydos, large granaries have been discovered attached to the houses of elite families. Their capacity is huge, enough to feed several families at once, and those who owned such dwellings were likely the economic centre of the community. These granaries make it difficult to determine whether the economic difficulties which occurred in the south were widespread throughout the whole country. Such large granaries were made to be filled, and it is possible that these buildings were constructed either in anticipation of a return to prosperity, or to hold the produce of several different communities at once. Abidos itself was a prominent community during the first intermediate period, and naturally that attracted threats. It was beyond the southern limit of Keti's kingdom, and along with Asyut would be one of the foremost battlegrounds of the wars that would soon erupt between north and south. The house of Keti persisted after its founder's death, but Wakare Keti I's successors are difficult to identify with certainty. We know that they continued to hold sway over the north, for some 60 to a 100 years following Keti's accession, but their exact identities are murky. Wankare Keti II seems an obvious choice for his immediate successor. But again, little is known of this man, or his true relationship to Keti I. In general, the house of Keti was on the ascent around 2100 BCE. Its influence extended from the delta to Asyut, and it held the strongest claim to establishing a new kingship over the two lands. Naturally, it was only a matter of time before someone decided to challenge that.